Hello, patrons. This is Ask the Minimalists Anything, number 52. I was thinking we could just do like this thing, Pete, where um, we don't, you know how sometimes like a, a sitcom, they'll introduce a new version of a main character and they just don't even mention it. Yes. Cause I am, I am going for his job here. Like, <laughs> if I do a good enough job, can you ditch Ryan? Me? <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Thanks. We'll, we'll have the patrons yeah. vote. <laughs> I think what they're going to vote though is just, can we add a third member and a fourth member between him and TK Coleman? If we had the four of us up here, there are four seats. Yeah. I think it'd be perfect. We all have a great dynamic. I'm here with uh, Peter Rollins today. Ryan has a children's cold. And so we're going to answer your questions. We've got some deep ones today. You can check him out, uh, by the way, he has a podcast. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well as his website, PeterRollins.com. But patrons, he has a Patreon where he dives deep into a lot of philosophical topics. So if you like what you hear today, you can check out his Patreon as well. From Alabama, let's start with, uh, well, let's start with a difficult question. Everything will become, uh, will unravel from there. Ella has a question for us. I think that if I live to be old, then it's a success that I didn't commit suicide. How do I stop thinking this? Mm. I think I think there's sort of two kinds of people: the people who think about suicide and the people who pretend they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well said. Yeah. So, talk to me about about that because it's one of those things that we almost never we never talk about. It's like we're we're terrified or we're scared to death of death. Yes. Yes. No. And that's that was I was thinking when I heard the question. I was thinking, you do want to stop. So Albert Camus wrote this book, The Myth of Sisyphus, and at the beginning he said, the only philosophical question to ask uh, is whether or not to kill yourself. Right? Mm. So he starts out, so that's very dramatic. He's like, that's the question. Everything else is kind of like uh, superficial in relation to that. And the idea, and again, the counterintuitive idea is when we don't allow ourselves to uh, talk about to ourselves and to other people, those feelings, they actually become more dangerous right. and they become more destructive. And what's being asked here is actually the deepest philosophical question that most of us spend our entire lives trying to avoid. We avoid death, we avoid old people, we, we go to LA where everything is, seems perpetually young. Where, every, where there's no age, there's even buildings here are all kind of new. You know, like in Ireland, there's buildings that are hundreds, thousands of years there before you were born and will be there thousands of years after you're born. Right. But when I'm in Los Angeles, and I, I do love this about LA, but nothing feels old, everything feels young. But what if the question of death is actually a question that... Um, we have to wrestle through and actually will bring life if we, if we're able to be honest with ourselves about those questions. Mm. So, now for somebody, by the way, who's thinking about it, that's why I think therapy is good because in, in psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, the person can go in and, and, and literally the analyst is like, there's nothing you can't talk about. Let's talk about it. Not only, Oh, you want to kill yourself? Hi. Tell me exactly how you've thought about it. Tell me exactly how you do it, what you would use. Tell me this. And then, and why? and what's going on in your life. And then this question goes deeper and deeper. And hopefully as you put that death uh, ideation into language, it robs it of its power. It robs it of its sting. Wow. Let's answer Amber's question. Being a nihilist can come off to others as sometimes being apathetic. Where do we find the balance between being a nihilist and caring? So, Pete, we just did an entire podcast episode, which will be out next month, about nihilism. And so this might even be a precursor to uh -huh. that in a way. 
because this will be out before that. So we're doing these in reverse order here. Now, nihilism and apathy, these terms presuppose that they're bad, right? And, and so is nihilism bad? Is apathy bad? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so the most famous nihilistic thinkers, uh, Nietzsche comes to mind as one of the most famous. Now, he wasn't a nihilist, but he because he wanted to overcome nihilism. But, but he's called a nihilist. He's called a nihilist, yeah. And he, he's called a nihilist, and so are some existentialists, other existentialists, because they take it seriously. So for Nietzsche, as we talk about in the podcast, for Nietzsche, nihilism is this experience in which everything you believe and think falls apart. All of the, the coordinates from which you understand your life begin to disintegrate. And it might happen when you've gone through a breakup, uh, gone through a health scare, someone you love has died. Um, at some, something has happened that everything falls away. And everything in us tries to protect ourselves from that experience. And Nietzsche says, no, 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 you've got to go into that darkness. You've got to feel it. You've got to fully enter into that nihilistic event, not so that you despair, not so that you die there, but because that is the path to light, that this path of darkness will lead to life. Um, and it may lead you out of apathy is what it sounds oh, like yeah. you're saying. And so if you're afraid of apathy, it may be that going deeper into an understanding of, of nihilism is what leads you out of it. In yes. some ways, they may be the opposite of one another. Yeah. And, and if you take, so Nietzsche has this very famous, as you'll know, this very famous parable called the death of God parable, where this madman goes into a marketplace crying, I seek God, I seek God. And then the people around him who don't believe in God, they all laugh at him. They say, you're a fool, you're an idiot. He says, has, have you lost your God like a child? Has he, has he run away, gone on a sea voyage, right? And they mock him. And then this madman who has a lantern smashes it in their midst. He transfixes them with his eyes. And he says, where is God? I will tell you, God is dead and you have killed him. And then he goes on to say that the, we've loosed the earth from its sun and we, we are going hither and thither. Now, the interesting thing about this, this parable that very few people talk about is that Nietzsche, Nietzsche's madman is not talking to people who believe in God. He's talking to people who don't. So it's, he's saying, God is dead and you don't realize it. He says, the lightning has struck, but you haven't heard the thunder. And one way of describing what Nietzsche means is that sometimes in our lives, the trauma has already happened. Right? The trauma is, right, here's a thing called primal mm. agony. Sorry, but, but primal agony is where someone feels that there's something terrible going to happen. So sometimes a person will feel that their life is going to fall apart. If they break up with this person, everything's going to end. Right. There's, so and it's called a primal light, and it comes at night often. So at night, this terror of something. And uh, this guy, Beyond, says that he, the good news is um, this, this event that you fear is not going to happen. It already has. Right? You're actually, this trauma, this event has already taken place. You just haven't been able to express it. So you think it's coming. And what the person has to do is realize that the, the horrific event that is going to happen already did. And all they have to do is come to terms with it, maybe, you know, from their childhood. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is for Nietzsche, he's saying something similar, which is like nihilism has happened. Something maybe destructive in our lives has taken place. But in being able to symbolize it, to be able to speak of it and be able to cry about it, to mourn, 
is what robs it of its sting and turns it into something productive. Yes. We have a question here from Zane. How do you appropriately bring up the topic of depression or despair with someone who you are close to and are worried about? Now, I wonder about a question like this, Pete, because quite often what we want to do is we want to fix other people. And I know because I feel that impulse myself. And there's a bit of hubris in there, like if Danny Unknown is over there and I just want to to fix something that I perceive to be wrong with him. So I may be assigning depression or despair to him and he may be or may not be depressed. And, and so we have to be really careful here because quite often what we're doing is we are simply judging and judgment is just a mirror that reflects our own internal insecurities, right? And so by bringing up the despair or the depression in Danny or podcast, Sean or Jordan here, what I might really be saying is I'm bringing up the, uh, my own despair, my own depression, and I'm hurling it at them. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, that can happen. Absolutely. And we see uh, in the other what we're what, what we can't uh, address in ourselves. Yes, and it's, it's one of the reasons that so many people, when you see these sort of self-help gurus who go around fixing everyone, and then you learn about some tremendous scandal in their life, right? Mm -hmm. Because they were so busy fixing everyone else because that was the easy way to not have to deal with their own internal work, depression, yeah. anxiety, stress, turmoil. Yeah, because actually the, the funny thing is, and I think people will resonate with this, is actually if you're in a good place yourself and you've done a lot of work and you're a, a calm presence for people and you're not always talking or whatever and you're a calm presence, people will start talking about their, their issues and you become a mirror of their own disavowed selves. So, so sometimes you, like, you don't need to point anything out to people. Mm -hmm. If you are... If you're a if you're a calm and and grounded individual and you li really listen, if someone's depressed, they'll start to they'll start to share it. And all you have to be is a type of mirror for them. Now the funny thing is, m most depression starts not subjectively but objectively. People think uh, I talked to somebody recently about this who um, said she wasn't depressed. I'm not depressed, and she listed all the reasons why she wasn't depressed, and. Through talking to her, I was saying, well, here's the funny thing is there's a depression of not knowing you're depressed where your depression is not subjective, it's objective. It's in the tapping of your finger. It's in that outburst of anger or it comes out in a bad back or, or digestive problems or whatever it is. The, the depression has not been subjectivized. So you're always partying. I'm, I'm not depressed. I'm partying. I'm having a great time. I'm always around people. You go, precisely, because if you were alone for too long, you would subjectively encounter it. So the objective partying is the evidence of the depression. And so one of the first steps is to be able to subjectivize, to, to be able to look at your life and go, for example, I'm always out partying. I'm always with other people. I'm always frantically doing things. Maybe I'm depressed and I just don't know it. <laughs> and then mm. as you open yourself up to that, notion weirdly the it starts to actually help diminish the depression as well so it, we think of depression as subjective but as i say sometimes it's objective it's mm -hmm. it's in it's in the world and you have to subjectivize it but um yeah now what would you say and i wanted to talk to you about this we did a private podcast together and uh for, for patreon and 
I wanted to ask you this, but I didn't get around to it. But the opposite of that is like someone like me, I don't like spending much time with people. Like I spend probably 90% of my time alone. So what does that say about me from an outside perspective? Hold up a mirror for me for a (laughs) moment. Okay. Well, so what, what do I think about you and your what do no. we think about someone? We don't have to, it doesn't have to be me, but I'm some, happy to psychoanalyze you, but no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm all for it, the, the psychoanalyzing no. here. So tell me about, about me, someone who doesn't enjoy the partying. In fact, like that seems like a particular kind of dread to me, even going out to meals with most, but there's like maybe three dozen people in the world that I enjoy having a meal with. You're one of them, but like there, there are just a few people where I, I really cherish and value that time, but even those are in low doses Yes, and, and there's something draining or even dreadful about spending too much time with, uh, with people other than myself. Yeah. Although maybe there's some dread with spending time with myself as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, for me, the simplest definition of a, of a symptom is something that causes you suffering. So if being, if partying doesn't cause you suffering or if being alone doesn't cause you suffering, if it, if it helps you and it's, it's, in, it's enriching, then it's fine. So there, like, there's no objective re- like there's no objective answer. Should I party more? Should I be more quiet? It's, it's right. almost like, is it, is it something that's causing you suffering in, in work and love? And, and Freud used that example. He says, you know, in work and love, are you struggling? And if, if someone, and we're all struggling in work and love to some extent, but if, um, if it's not that bad, then, it, then it's not unhealthy. So you can be, you know, alone with yourself. Like, so I'm the same as you. I live a very quiet life, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I do, lo- I do enjoy socializing, but and minimally so, you know. And, and so the other once every five years. <laughs> <laughs> so if Ryan were here, if he didn't have his cold, and and, and he were here, he's the sort of opposite of yeah. me. He. If he were to spend time alone, excessive amounts of time alone, there would be a particular suffering there, right? And so, as you're saying, it's not that one is good, one is preferable writ large. It's one is preferable at the individual level. Like if you if you couldn't leave the house, like if you literally like you didn't want to do this anymore, you got anxious about even opening the front door, then it's a symptom. Uh, Then you you know then there's there's an issue, but. Again, it's, it's looking and going, are you afraid of open spaces? Are you afraid of people? Are you, are you afraid of leaving the house? And, and that's different from really enjoying your space right. and enjoying thinking, enjoying reflection. Those are two very different things. And I lack that desire to go out and spend a lot of time with people. I thought I had it at one, uh, at one point in time because it was this sort of mimetic desire. I should want mm-hmm. to party yeah. like everyone else. I should want to be extremely social. I should be in a job that requires me to spend 60 or 70 hours a week around tremendous amounts of people, right? It's not that those things are wrong. They were just inappropriate for me. Yeah. Well, this is part of the reason why I'm in LA. I mentioned the other reason earlier, but one of the reasons as well is I'm so introverted that if I lived somewhere quiet, I'd probably never leave the house again. So that same yeah. way. So yeah. it's great to have like, I don't know if you're the same, but I've got a couple of friends who are really extrovert and I love it because they even, and I get angry at them sometimes, but they know that I'm not. So they draw me out of myself. And then I also grind them because, you know, I'm boring enough that like they you know, if they get a two out of hand at a party, I can go, man, you got to chill out, you know, but also they're the ones who goes, Pete, you haven't gone out of the house for a month. You have to come for a party. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe if you're a party or you need to find those 
quiet friends like us. And uh-huh. if you're quiet like us, we need the odd extrovert. So yeah. you, and, you and Ryan is a good uh, mix, probably. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Let's answer a question from Amet. How do we accurately identify and address the sources of our depression when it's not an obvious concern like lack of money or friends? Mm-hmm. You know, Pete, I think that the source of the depression is never the source, right? It is often, there's, there's a source beneath the source. Yeah. Like the lack of money is not actually what's causing me to be depressed. It, it, and I know this from, from personal experience. I grew up really poor and thought we were unhappy growing up because we didn't have money. And so of course, when I went out in my twenties and climbed the corporate ladder and started making really good money, I was in a way even more depressed because money simply amplified the habits and behaviors that were going on before the, you know, the money, right? And so there was something else beneath the lack of money. The other one was what lack of 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 friends, right? Well, sometimes you can be surrounded by all the friends that are making you miserable or depressed. Yeah. And so that's not the that's not the answer either. It seems to me there's always some sort of why behind the what. Yes, yes, and 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 locating that is very difficult. This is why, right? If, what, this is my critique, by the way, of um, uh, uh, too much drugs and meditation. I'm not against drugs and meditation, um, but when they're used as a way to somehow access the deeper part of yourself, I again, I'm not even against that so much, but. Here's the issue that I have with it is in psychoanalysis, there's this idea that who you are isn't somewhere deep within. It's on the surface. Like you don't have to go deep within. You you find who the person is through just listening carefully to what they say. So in psychoanalysis, the reason is you have a, you have a person because what you do is you start to, through projection and transference, you start to treat them in particular ways. And the way you treat them helps them see what you're dealing what what's what's going on in your life like it's almost like we can't see not because it's too deep it's because it's so in our face like it's it's mm. everywhere so in like I'll give an example a friend of mine recently said um she wrote a text and she said oh I have to send such and such uh, a voicemail and she meant voicemail but she said voicemail and um ah. what what that revealed you know is if whenever you listen literally it's going oh she she is attracted to this guy. She wants to, to have a sexual encounter with him. Now, that was not admitted at a conscious level, but that that Freudian slip led to, you know, that understanding. This happens all the time, is that we're always telling the truth in our little slips and our little things. And if you just listen to the slips, you can begin to kind of like work out what you're dealing with. Maybe, for example, every time you're going to see your mum, you lose the keys. You can't find the keys to your car. Maybe you don't want to see your mum, right? So the it's this is why I'm a big fan of psychotherapy to some extent, is that we are invested in not seeing what makes us, we're invested in covering over things. So it requires a real sensitivity to either having someone who feeds back what we are to ourselves and helps us see this, or if you don't have that, you just keep a really close eye on your dreams and on your symptoms and on what you, you do and don't do. And you can begin like like Columbo. I'm a big, big fan of Columbo. Like you're a detective to yourself. You have to be a detective to yourself. Like the crime is being committed and there are all of these little hints at what the issue is. And you have to be Columbo and you have to walk in and go, okay, right. I love my brother, but I had this real dream where my brother died. 
like, well, it's your dream, like, so you drowned him. <laughs> so, hmm, maybe I've got an issue with my brother. Mm. Oh, that's weird. I didn't think I had an issue with my brother, but I did dream he drowned. So, again, you're listening to things. Or an example of I had to meet a friend and went to the wrong coffee shop with a different name. And I realized once I got there, oh, yeah, I know that other coffee shop. Why did I go to this coffee shop half an hour away, right? Oh, I don't want to see him. And I've got, oh, right. So you listen, why did I forget to see my kids? Or was it because, you know, like I love my kids, but but I didn't go and see them. So I, cause I forgot, maybe it's because I want my kids to hate me because I hate myself. You know, the truth is always operating around you. And when you talk about dreams, it can be literal dreams, but mm-hmm. also like, what do you, what do you fantasize about? What do you daydream about? What are your desires, yeah. both conscious and unconscious? And, and where do they emanate from? Because what you're really talking about here is getting to the bottom of that. Now, as you said, some sort of expert can sort of hold up a mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's not about going to a therapist, because quite often, what do we do? We go there and say, all right, give me the prescription. Yep. Either literally, if we go to a doctor, fix me right now. I can't sleep. I need the pill to sleep. I am depressed. I need the pill to not be depressed. And it's not to say there isn't a use for prescription or or pharmacological solutions, but usually the solution ends up just becoming another problem that layers on top of the existing problem. It covers up the problem. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we can sometimes, depression's interesting because sometimes depression arises from, as we talked about in the podcast, a failure of desire. So we, we can no longer desire. We find ourselves no longer desiring or we're fixated. We, we desire one thing. We desire one person or one thing. We can't move beyond that that fixated desire. And so sometimes once you isolate the depression and and kind of where it's coming from, say you're fixated on a person, um, the problem is basically, again, I forget that this is before the podcast, we talked about signifiers, yes. but um, uh, we, the signifying chain is stopped whenever you're fixated on someone, someone stands in for the thing. They are the real thing that will fix everything and be everything. Yes. And we have to kind of, very slowly realize that they're not, you know, even if you, your life could have been better with that person, for example, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been perfect because they are not the thing that will satisfy and complete you. And sometimes partly it's, um, we get over fixation by coming to that realization and, and then our desire continues to function and then we can start desiring somebody else, somebody new. So, um, but yeah, depression is usually, is a function of a failure of desire. Either desire is stopped pretty much, or it's fixated, it's stuck on something. Mm. And um, uh, yeah, that's, and, and we all, I think at different times experience that to some extent. For sure. Yeah. And, and we, may, we may stop desiring and feel like there's something wrong with me, or we may desire something that is uh, impossible based on, you know, we, we've set up some story that we tell ourselves, some expectation that, that we have established. And it's leading us to misery and eventually spiraling out of control. And no wonder we're depressed. And you mentioned other people, they become the objects of our desire. And yes, while your life may have been better if you had been with that person or you had gotten that job, the only reason it would be better is because I've told myself the story that now my life is is better, right? It's the same with your life is worse but by the people you surround yourself with. No, not really. No one really has the power to upset you. 
you have the power to upset you. Although it feels as though we've set up this strange superpower with all of our friends and family and loved ones and neighbors and even perfect strangers on the street. One little cavil from someone can send us into a spiral of depression because of the expectation of I need their respect. I need their appreciation. I need them to think of me in this particular light. And if they don't, then the story I'm going to tell myself is, well, my life would be better if they would. And the great thing is, which is, is your life by definition wouldn't be better with that person for one reason, that because they've become uh, a fantasized object, an ideal. So I had a great experiment that was playing out in reality for me is I had two friends, one who was obsessed with this person and they were both obsessed with, with somebody. One of them, they didn't end up with that person. The other, they did. So it was really fun because they were, had very similar lives. One ended up with this with this this girl they wanted to be with. The other didn't. And what was the, the and both were tragic at first, right? So the person who didn't, they had to get over their fixation, mm-hmm. and so with a psychoanalysis, and the person who did. They ended up just fighting. It was so destructive. And actually, that was even worse because both of them, this was the object that would bring satisfaction and completeness. So either you're you're between a rock and a hard place, you're unhappy because you don't get it or you're unhappy because you do. But um, both of them had to learn that there is nothing that stops up all desire and 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 yeah and actually getting the thing can often be the worst of the two (laughs) because it it eliminates the desire the very thing that made you feel alive and so getting everything you ever wanted is often the biggest cause of depression yes or everything you thought you wanted because it turns out often that everything you ever wanted isn't actually what you wanted at all yeah we've got one more question here from terry Why does depression seem to be most pronounced in developed nations? And what can we do as a society to address it appropriately? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the Hadza. I don't know if you've looked into the Hadza in Tanzania, but they're a primitive hunter. I I, I don't say primitive as a pejorative. In fact, it's a compliment, if anything. Uh, They're in Tanzania, hunter-gatherer tribe. And even they have been infected by society to some extent. There's even fluoride in their water supplies that they get naturally. Somehow we've just pumped it everywhere, right? And so even they aren't true humans in the sense. There's only about 1,500 left. The, The joke I often make is that there are eight billion people in the world, but about 1500 humans left. (laughs) And, and they're closer to the sort of what one might call the natural state, but they don't have a word for depression. They they don't have, um, and, and you see this in other hunter gatherer tribes as well. We often create our own anxiety and the people well, not the people. We are part of society. Our brain is, is, is the mechanism that is, uh, triggering society in a way. And so we often are making ourselves miserable, but it is much more pronounced in the, in the developed world. And maybe part of it has to do with inequality, which by itself isn't inherently bad. I mean, you you compare me to LeBron James, that we're going to be unequal and not just monetarily, but physically and uh, socioeconomically and talent wise, et cetera. Uh, He's also much smarter than I am. Right. And so we're not going to ever be equal. That's not the problem. But the problem is the desire for us to now I'm supposed to be like him and it's making me depressed. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. I have to look up into this group. I, I'm a big fan of uh, anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss as well. He's done lots of interesting work in different 
North American, South American tribal groups. Yeah, and I would say that, so in, in the philosophical position that I, that I take, this Hegelian position, there's this idea that there's always conflict, there's always antagonism, there's always contradiction in everything. So that's the, the nature of reality. There's a certain type of antagonism bubbling up within within reality itself and that leads being out of nothingness conscious life out of being consciousness out of life what and this this antagonism kind of generates complexity and the argument i would make is uh using hegel is that we're always trying to overcome contradiction we're always trying to find a way to overcome conflict and every time we overcome it we overcome it by getting to a more intractable contradiction. So if you yeah. go to psychoanalysis and you start, you're there because um, you've got like, you know, problems with digestion and you're kind of, I can't digest and I feel, I feel sick and the doctor can't find anything wrong. And then through analysis, you go, oh, there's something you can't digest in language. There's something you haven't been able to speak and it's manifesting itself and not being able to digest food. You start to talk about that, how you can't say certain things in your relationship. But then that leads to another contradiction. And so you, th this issue starts to clear up. But then you go, oh, and I felt that I couldn't say certain things in my family. And it goes to this deeper contradiction. And you keep going deeper and deeper until the cure is not when you get rid of contradiction, but you realize, oh, contradiction is part of reality itself. I am a contradiction. And, and then you kind of secure. So in a similar way, I would argue that every society will generate its own antagonisms and contradictions, and they will all look different historically. And for us in the West, our particular kind of contradiction um, in, the, in the 20th century is connected to neuroses and, and is connected to a certain type of subjective contradiction that you probably won't find in other places, but you'll always find the antagonism and the contradiction, but it manifests itself differently. And we because of the, our historical situation, that antagonism and contradiction has manifested itself in certain neurotic symptoms that, that we see um, that probably didn't exist hundreds of years ago. I mean, some people say that psychoanalysis came into existence because it had to solve a problem that came into existence. Yes. You know? Yeah, there were new. Yeah, I feel the same way about when we talk about minimalism. It's not a new philosophy. It's just a word that we've placed on. And but what is new tends to be the problem: this overindulgent overconsumption, and also the, just the sheer access to distractions, to material possessions, the sheer access to um, you know one-click purchase. We, we've removed all the the friction from our lives, which sounds nice at first, but you also lose traction when you've removed all, all the friction. And so we're sort of careening from one side to another, skating around, you know, that we're like driving on thin ice there and, and careening from one side of the other. And of course we don't find any meaning in any of it. We think we're going to, and then when we don't find it, it feels even more meaningless in a way. On the nihilism episode we did together, we were kind of talking about Fight Club for a minute. And it turns out that the true nihilist in, in that film is not the main character or his alter ego. It's capitalism or consumerism. Itself, yeah. Itself, yeah. Th because... As soon, as soon as you go far enough, as soon as you become complete, you realize how meaningless that so-called completion actually is. That buying the house full of stuff and getting it organized just right, you can do that. 
and it's fine, but it was never the point of doing what you were doing. And by seeking that out and then getting it, now you've lost your desire. And as soon as you lost that desire, you spiral into depression. Yeah, I mean that's that's the Nietzschean thing. So, there, and the reason why I think Nietzsche is misunderstood as a as a nihilist is that is because he was like, we're already in nihilism. We're already kind of lost meaning. We've lost individuality. We're not able to think so much for ourselves. We give up responsibility. That's already happening, but we're kind of in denial. And Nietzsche says, so nihilism is already there. It's like it's always it's an event. It's not a philosophy. It's a it's a reality that we swoon within. And then Nietzsche says, what we need to do is then have the courage to see that, to come to know that, to see the nihilism that we're already in, that we're trying to, we're, we know it, but we're trying to avoid it by purchasing all the time. We're trying to avoid it by, by fanaticism, by whatever it is. We're trying to avoid the confrontation. Sit down and realize that the, the terror of, a, of nihilism has already happened. <laughs> you know, that's like the primal agony. The, the terrible thing you think is going to happen has already happened. You, you accept it, you realize it, and in doing that, you can come to a healthier space. You become you 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 enter into a different mode of being where you're no longer libidinally invested in having the next thing, because you're able to kind of. So it's, it, nihilism is in a way by accepting it, you overcome it. That's the that's the weird irony of it. Yeah, it seems to me there's all kinds of irony in a lot of these as we go layers deep. Mm-hmm. You know, the the ir- irony of nihilism is that it's that everything can be interwoven with meaning. Nihilism on the surface, we often think about as everything is meaningless or nothing has intrinsic meaning. And while those things might be true, what you're really saying is that um, that's not necessarily a bad thing and you can go much deeper. And we'll we'll talk about it more on the podcast that y'all will hear soon. Patrons, thank you so much. Check out Peter Rollins, PeterRollins.com. Check out his podcast and give him some love on Patreon. Check out his Patreon account as well. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it